everyone. Welcome back to Building the Ballot. I am Adam Dorowski. We are back with another episode on outsider baseball. Today we're going to talk about Cuban baseball, focused mostly on the early 20th century. And our guest today is Gary Ashwill from the Seamheads Negro League database. Gary is an expert on not just Negro League baseball, but also on Latin baseball, specifically Cuban baseball, and specifically early 20th century. So we're going to pick his brain about some players, about the history of the league, what the league in Cuba was like, uh, like how many teams, how many games, what was the talent level, just a lot of really uh, fascinating stuff about this whole world of baseball that existed outside of of what I, I knew about on, on a daily basis. So... You know, this all started with Eric Shalek's Negro League MLEs that uh, made me realize that there were some really, really incredible, almost near or possibly even Hall of Fame quality players that I had never heard of because they played outside of the U.S., uh, even outside of the Negro Leagues. And that's like players like Julian Castillo, Carlos Moran, Reginio Garcia. We're going to get into all of those players uh, in this discussion. So I hope you enjoy this chat with Gary as much as I did. And here it is. Everybody, welcome back to Building the Ballot. I am here now with Gary Ashwell of the Seamheads Negro League database. How are you doing, Gary? Great. How are you, Adam? Doing well, doing well. So I feel like I'm kind of collecting the complete set. We had Scott, we had Kevin, now I got Gary. Uh, so I'm just kind of <laughs> getting everybody on the show. So I'm really excited to, to chat about some, some uh, turn of the 20th century Cuban baseball with you. All right, great. So, so where did this interest come from in, in Cuban baseball? Well, it started for me because of my interest in the Negro Leagues in the United States and the fact that so many of the best black baseball players in the United States went down to Cuba and elsewhere in Latin America uh, to play uh, really opened up this opportunity to find out more about them, about their playing careers. Um, and for me personally, uh, this is this is kind of a boring uh, origin story, but um, uh, it just turns out when I became interested and started doing serious Negro League research, um, I found out that a university library near me um, actually had uh, some of the most important uh, Cuban newspapers from the early part of the 20th century uh, available on microfilm. And it's just one of the few places in the United States that's true. I mean, there's some, you know, I think, you know, New York, Florida, you know, and a few other places, but it's, it's pretty, that's not, it's not easy to find the, that kind of material. So um, I was lucky enough to, to be able to go check out those newspapers from the years when I knew that uh, people like Pete Hill and John Henry Lloyd and Joe Williams uh, played down there, uh, as well as the great Cuban players who are also in the, in the, uh, uh, played in the U.S., like Cristobal Torrienti and Jose Mendez. Um, I went down and, um, and uh, uh, I went to the library and checked, checked it out and found out that the Cuban newspapers were actually, um, very good about covering the games and had excellent box scores for the most part. Uh, you know, the game, the, the leagues in the first part of the 20th century in Cuba were based in Havana. In some instances, the teams were completely uh, uh, uh located there only in Havana. So all the games were played in the same stadium in Almandari's park uh, in, until uh, 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 you know, through, through, through the 20s. Um, um, 
and so it was easy for me to start getting a really good look at um, uh, the seasons um, down there. Um, there were some seasons that that uh, 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 you know the they played probably anywhere from thirty to forty five games a year or more. Um, but it's really just. Um, uh, uh, um, a couple of, you know, they play two or three times a week. So the number of, and the, the number of uh, uh, teams in a league at a time were three or four, usually most seasons. Right. And so uh, the total number of games you're talking about is, wasn't very much like you might have 30 or 45 total games in some instances or a 60 or 75, something like that. So acquiring all the box scores, processing them and typing them in, uh, you know, was not something that took a huge amount of time. So, you know, I was able to, I can yeah, do a season sometimes in like a week, you know, or something like that. So it was really, um, uh, uh, it was, it was a really fantastic experience, you know, as a researcher to get this very precise picture. You know, I started being, like I said, being interested in the Negro league players, um, get this very precise picture of their performance. It was a sort of slice of it. It's like, okay, we've got this 30 games or this, these 45 games for, uh, for Lloyd or Hill. Um, and uh, I was just able to keep on going with that. And so uh, to this point, I have um, compiled box scores for um, uh, seasons from 1900 through 1923-24 with a couple of exceptions in between a couple of seasons that still need to be filled in and then a later uh, I think 1927-28 we also have um, that's one of the earliest I think that's the first that is the first Cuban season I ever did in fact 1927-28 oh, wow. it was a three team uh, league that year so and, and it was uh, you know I, I was able to to, to get that and put it together and in, in, in a pretty short amount of time. So, and, and also some of those, uh, not only do they have excellent box scores, the newspapers, the Havana newspapers that cover these leagues, uh, sometimes they even have play-by-play accounts. Um, wow. And there are two or three seasons that have um, play-by-play accounts for most games. So very oh, wow. unusual for, uh, you know, for anybody studying the Negro leagues, you don't usually get that much detail for that. <laughs> that yeah. Know, that's amazing for all season. Yeah. So, and also some of the early box scores, like they're very, you know, uh, uh, full of information. So they actually have some of the early seasons actually have batters strikeouts in the box score, which is also very unusual. Mm-hmm. Some of them, Usually you have to deduce batters walks from a box score. They don't, the box score doesn't tell you that, you know, a, you know, uh, Oscar Charleston walked twice in this game and, uh, you know, John Henry, Henry Lloyd walked once or whatever. Um, you have to do deduce it from the at bats and the, the pitchers walks and then sacrifice hits and so on. Um, but in the case of some of the Cuban box scores, they actually tell you. So, so, you know, for sure. Uh, that's great. Um, yeah. And as well as other, pieces of information that usually aren't in uh, box scores that we find for Negro League games in the U.S. That's amazing. Yeah, I was telling you before we we pressed record here that just kind of looking into this was like discovering like a whole new world of baseball that I didn't know about. And it came about when looking at uh, Eric Shalek's MLEs and finding players uh, pretty high up on the list that I had literally never heard of, like Julian Castillo and Carlos Moran. 
and uh, just seeing the work that you've done to compile career stats for, for those players is absolutely amazing. Can you talk a little bit about the history of baseball in Cuba? Uh, we don't have to go into too much detail here, but I was reading about how uh, it was brought over by students kind of as a way to rebel against uh, the Spanish rule. Yeah, well, there were obviously because of the proximity of the two countries, there there had always been a lot of you know commercial and other kinds of traffic between the U.S. and Cuba, um, and so uh, some of the wealthier families were able to send their students to school in the United States. Uh, in particular, there are a couple of schools. There's a Spring Hill College in Mobile, Alabama, and Fordham University in New York, um, both uh, the Catholic universities, I believe, and. So unsurprisingly, so uh, students from those schools and other other schools uh, brought the game back to Cuba with them. Uh, it's also true that uh, some of the Cuban students at these schools went on to become uh, professional players in the United States, in particular Esteban Bayon, who, who played in the National Association in the 1870s uh, with the New York Mutuals. Uh, and other teams. He, I think he played for the Morrisania unions before the National Association existed, if I remember correctly. And he was at um, Fordham, right? Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. So he's in the New York area. Uh, and he was one of the major figures who came, went back to Cuba by 1874 and really got the game started there and was involved in organizing uh, the the earliest clubs and the first league there. So, uh, yeah, so, so, so the U S and of course there are also other examples of U S influence in Cuba, just because of the commercial ties, you know, between the two countries and so on. But, but yeah, that's the, probably the main path, uh, that brought baseball to Cuba is through, through these students. And, um, yes, it's true that the, uh, 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 sentiment for against the Spanish empire was growing in Cuba towards the end of the 19th century and baseball became one of the cultural ways in which that was expressed um, uh, as in opposition to say bullfighting which was sort of the national sport of Spain and this came to be regarded among a lot of Cubans as sort of a barbaric sport whereas baseball was more refined and modern and elegant you know and it and in fact in Cuba it was uh, baseball was actually very fashionable among uh middle classes and and higher uh in the late 19th century and was this was a favorite of sort of literary circles and sort of high you know very fashionable people so um uh, so it was, it was, uh, 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 you know, very much a, uh, a game that became associated with sort of the Cuban national, uh, self-conception. So. Yeah, I read recently, I had no idea that the, the Cuban league was segregated in the 19th century mm -hmm. as well. And it, it sounds like right around that same time, right around the turn of the 20th century is when it opened up. Yeah, the earliest clubs were just like they were in the United States. They were as much perhaps social clubs as they were, you know, sports or athletic clubs. Um, and they were composed of, you know, middle class, upper class people, sometimes people verging on, you know, sort of aristocratic. Like there were a lot, a lot of the early, like the, the Abana Club and Almendares, like some of the people involved in organizing those clubs were involved in this, in the, in the opera levels of the Cuban struggle for independence. And after independence in the Cuban government, there were government officials and so on who had ties to, you know, the, the, the major baseball clubs. Um, and so it was very much a middle-class, upper-class sport in a lot of ways, or at least the most visible aspects of it. 
um, as it was played in Havana. Um, of course, it percolated out to the society at large. And what happened was that uh, you know, as the game became more and more popular in Havana and more and more crowds and uh, 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 crowds buying tickets, there was more money involved, there was gambling surrounding the game. Uh, of course, you then started having sort of covert professionalism and players induced to change from one club to another. It's just, it's a, it's a very similar history to what happened in the United States in the 1860s, you know, leading up to the start of professionalism there. Um, same thing happened in Cuba. Um, the interesting thing is in Cuba, um, it was also uh, the move toward professionalism also became or it happened alongside a move toward the inclusion of uh, black players or darker skinned players um, in Cuba who had been, uh, they had formed their own clubs and were, you know, were very much involved in baseball uh, as much as uh, the lighter skinned uh, people. Um, but there was a movement, movement towards uh, integration toward the end of the 19th century. And in fact, it's a very, it's, it's not a story that I fully understand yet myself. <laughs> I've seen some fairly, uh, you know, there, there are some very brief accounts in in, in English language uh, literature about this. There's, there's a little bit, not much, but there's some. Um, I've been able to look at some of the primary sources from the time around 1900. Um, and this was the year when the new Cuban League was formed, which included a, a previously all black club, the San Francisco Baseball Club. Uh, as well as some uh, darker-skinned darker players being hired by the other uh, more traditional uh, club, uh, Cuban clubs, so like Almandares and Habana. Um, and in fact, the San Francisco club joined the league uh, and they won the championship in the first <laughs> season. So, wow. so yeah, it was kind of, kind of an amazing uh, uh, accomplishment. Um, uh, so that's that's uh, sort of how you know these 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 things uh, uh, developed toward the toward the end of the 1890s and into 1900. Also, um, some of the forces who were opposed to um, to uh, having an integrated league uh, with uh, players of all colors. Uh, they tended to also sort of couch their opposition in terms of like opposing crass professionalism. So in their view, it's, you know, it's like it was corrupting the purity, you know, the purity of amateur sports, you know, by letting these, like letting, you know, the riffraff in, you know, who, who, right. who because they were not middle-class gentlemen, you know, if they wanted to uh, uh, spend time playing baseball, they would eventually have to be paid because they're working class folks, you know? And so this is sort of, these things were issues were sort of conflated so that you know allowing black players to play was the same as corrupting like the the the, the purity of the sport um yeah, it's the same it's sort a, of yeah it's the same sort of thing that like you know the olympics were uh, in a lot of ways you know did something similar at the time um so right yeah you hear a lot about how later Later in the 20th century or later in the early part of the 20th century, uh, Latin American baseball was this melting pot. And I, I just had no mm -hmm. idea that mm -hmm. up, up before that, it was it was mm -hmm. just as segregated as it was in the U.S. Yeah. Yeah. 
Now you mentioned some of the clubs like Habana and Almendares and, and even San Francisco. Uh, since the league was so small, did we tend to have like the same clubs going throughout the history of the league or were there a lot of other clubs that came in? Like some of the other names I've seen is the, the club Faye. Uh, that I see mm-hmm. that name quite a bit. Yeah. Anything you can tell me about the, these clubs in, uh, in particular? Yeah. Well, Habana and Almendares are of course the two, um, uh, main clubs in the history of pre-Castro baseball in Cuba. Um, uh, they were the, the Abano were the, the red team. Almendari is the blue team. Um, Abano the, the later adopted a, the mascot of the lions. So they were close Leones and uh, Almendaris were the scorpions. Um, Alacranes. So um, they're the eternal rivals, Los Eternos Rivales. <laughs> And uh, their rivalry sort of defined uh, the league for many years. Now that kind of created something of a problem because you know fans divided up. It's like the Yankees and the Red Sox or something. But it's very hard to have a league that exists for the purpose of only supporting a rivalry between two teams. So there was always at least an, an effort to have a third team so that there's at least a three three cornered league. Um, and and sometimes when uh, uh, the league started to expand beyond Havana, there were other, other clubs from Santa Clara, for example, Matanzas um, and uh, other, other towns near, near, near Havana. Um, uh, some of the other teams that, well, I, I, I spoke of San Francisco. Um, they were named after a neighborhood that was sort of a located near, near the, the harbor, um, sort of a dockyard kind of neighborhood um, that was predominantly black. So that's you know, why, why they were you know, an all black team uh, prior to um, joining the league. And, and afterwards they were still pre- predominantly uh, black. Um, Faye was another team that uh, uh, was formed. It was kind of, it's only a formed a little, it's only a little bit younger than uh, Abana and Almendares. It was formed back in 1879. Um, they were originally formed as, I only know a very sketchy account of their, of their origins, but, um, uh, they were formed in part as a charitable operation. So the, the activities of the club sort of supported charitable contributions to poor families in Havana. Um, uh, but, but, uh, yeah, Abana and Almendares like continued throughout, um, San Francisco, the, existed in, in different forms until around 1915 and the same thing with Faye. they they went out of existence around that time and there were there were other clubs that were brought in at various times to try to bring the count up to three or four at various times excellent yeah what so when was it that uh negro league players from the u.s started coming down because some of these rosters that i look at uh you know and it's three or four teams like you look at the players on these rosters and it's like whoa, these are like all-star teams. There's a lot of talent down there in just a few teams. Yeah. Well, basically after um, the Spanish-American War in 1898 and uh, during uh, the U.S. occupied Cuba for a few years after that, um, during that time, uh, U.S. teams started coming, traveling to Cuba, um, particularly after the summer season in the U.S. was done. Uh, uh, major league, like white major league teams began coming down. Um, the first, first time this happened was in um, 1900. 
uh, they really started regularly in 1908. There was a whole, like from 1908 through 1913, every year, a major, at least one, and sometimes two major league U.S. teams came down after, like in, in October, November, December, um, after the U.S. season was over. And those were really good teams, like the New York Giants, Philadelphia A's, Detroit Tigers, you know, Ty Cobb, right. Christy Mathewson, like all, you know, Sam Crawford, like all sorts of uh, great players played in Cuba at that time. So, so, so that started happening. The Negro League players, so you asked about the Negro Leagues, and I started talking about the white major leagues. Oh, it's um, quite all right. Uh, basically, uh, black player, black teams in the United States started around the same time. So the Cuban ex-giants came down, the, the confusingly named Cuban ex-giants uh, visited Cuba in 1900. Um, and this started uh, uh, you know, a tradition that really got really got going in 1903, but basically almost every year, you know, an Negro League team would come down in the fall to Havana and play against the Cuban League teams. Um, and uh, for the Cuban League season, uh, this this was known as the American season, uh, the American series, uh, and it happened before the start of the main Cuban League season, which was the Winter League that kind of went from you know November, December through sometimes sometimes as late as you know March or April, whatever. But the American teams would come down before that season. It would be kind of like a preseason thing. They'd play these series against uh, the Cuban teams. Excellent. Yeah, that, that was kind of what I was going to go into next, like what a, a season looks like. And the first question I had was, yeah. I kind of see like Cuban League and Cuban Winter League, like, are these right. interchangeable or, or are they different things? Um, well, if you just talk about the Cuban League, you're really talking about the Cuban Winter League. Mm -hmm. um, I think on Seam Heads, we've labeled it the Cuban Winter League, just to avoid confusion. But um uh, yeah, because we have to put all the seasons together, like all the, you know, the U.S. Negro League seasons, the Cuban right. sales, like if you have it all together, it's, um, it can be confusing. So, but yeah, the main league in Cuba uh, developed uh, as the Winter League. There's, uh, there's simple reason for this. It used, used to be, I mean, you could play baseball year round in Cuba. Um and in fact, that first that that first season of the integrated league, the 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 uh, Liga Cubana de Baseball, which was founded in 1900, that season started in May, which is a little bit because a little bit later than usual um, for them. It started in May and went until December. Okay, so so um, so it's kind of you know. Uh, based on the calendar year and you'd have a championship for that year perhaps or or um, you know some predetermined sequence of months you know like we're, we're going to play the season for you know from this month until this month but it wasn't necessarily based on the seasons originally uh, but what happened was that Cuban players uh, and, and Cuban baseball in general started to become more attuned to the rhythms of the U.S. Um, so U.S. teams came down at a certain time to visit Cuba. Also, uh, Cuban teams of Cuban players began to tour in the United States, the first major one being the All-Cubans in 1899. They had sort of a brief tour that was not that successful. But they started up again in 1902, and then it became an annual thing. And so, they, so a lot of the best players in Cuban baseball were going to the United States to play in the summers. So that meant that a lot of the best players were not available in Cuba during the summer months. So therefore, but they were back in Cuba for the winter. So therefore the better, the, the more important championships in Cuba tended to be the ones that were played over the with fall, winter, spring, like sort of that, like sort of, you know, over, over that period of time. Um, 
And that meant that the, there, we do have on CMEDS, for example, we have uh, statistics for what I've sometimes called the Cuban Summer League or the Cuban Summer Championship. Um, and that's sort of a secondary competition that the leagues organized uh, to take place during the summer months, um, the pre Premio de Verano. So it just means prize of summer. So, yes. How was the, well, we've talked kind of about the number of teams and you said the seasons were typically like 35 or 40 games. How was the, the quality of play and the style of play? Like how did it differ from the baseball play in the, in the States and how was the quality? Well, if we're talking about really early uh, in the 20th century, um, one of the interesting things about it is that it's, you know, the, it was very, the style is probably broadly similar to what was played in the U S a dead ball era. So lots of steals and so small ball sacrifices, you know, um, very little power hitting. Um, what, what are these interesting things though, is that when you look at, uh, this, the actual statistics, um, the batting averages, I'm just, as I'm sure you've noticed are extremely low in the 1900s in the Cuban league, like even lower than they are in the United States. Oh, yeah. uh, that's, it's a period where, you know, uh, was it El Elmer Flick won the batting title with a 301 average. I think it was, you know, in the United States, but in Cuba, you know, because of the smaller the the the, the smaller number of games, you probably your 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 batting champion would have a higher batting average, probably just simply because of the smaller sample size and more more outliers. But uh, the overall league averages were very low. Sometimes they're around two hundred. That's the batting average for for the entire league. So if you hit two fifty in the Cuban league in nineteen oh four oh five, like you were well above average. So um, and also. Uh, very few home runs. Uh, the Cuban parks uh, were very large. The fences were very far away. Um, I don't remember the exact dimensions at the moment, but I think that Almandari's park may have been something like 500 feet, you know, to center field, you know. So <laughs> you were get, given the way dead ball era baseball was played, you were not going to hit a baseball over the fence. You know? <laughs> so it was just not going to happen. Um, so home runs were quote inside the park unquote but all that just meant if you hit it hard enough to get it over the, the outfielders heads or in between a couple of outfielders that could roll long enough then maybe you could get a home there weren't very many of those um right and really not not that many extra base hits like some doubles and triples certainly so lots of stolen bases lots of singles lots of errors too um so i've tried to you know come up with a full explanation for why the batting averages were so much lower there than in the United States and I, I've also as far as I can tell that the same thing happens to the U.S. major league and minor league teams when they would travel down there their drought batting averages dropped so it's not it's not just something that the Cuban players are doing amongst themselves it was some condition you know something that was happening there um, and there's not really any one explanation for it that I can find I Possibly the some photographs perhaps show that the grass was not you know was kept a bit longer maybe you know than than might have been the case in the U.S. Which I, back then I guess that could have a major I, impact back then. Yeah, it could it could have you know uh, you know the possibly the baseballs they used um, uh, you know that could have some kind of uh, an impact. Um, I've also seen a stray remark uh, in 
and this I've only seen this once, but uh, in a Cuban paper uh, around, I forget what year, it was 1907, 1908, they made the remark that the score loves to like the, you can't convince them that something is not an error, you know, that it's, it's, it's so there might've been some, some impact by the scores. I don't, I, you know, it's hard to say really, but anyway, the fact is that the batting average is based on what's presented in the box scores, you know, or we're very low. Now they jumped up around starting around 1910, 1911. And this is probably noteworthy. This is really when, like uh, baseball contacts with the U S really got going. And as they accelerated, um, you know, I think that probably the Cuban game became more and more influenced by by uh, the American game. And, and starting in um, 1907, uh, the Cuban League clubs had previously not signed uh, foreign players. Uh, they began to bring in American players around that time. Um, not the, the best were uh, Black players that they brought in, you know, Pete Hill and Rube Foster and um, John Henry Lloyd and Bruce Petway and people like that. Uh, but they also did bring in uh, white American minor leaguers and sometimes major leaguers uh, beginning at that point. So um, there was, there was some good, you know, good talent coming in. And I think that this really started uh, or kickstarted um, uh, the improvement in quality of Cuban baseball. I mean, it kept getting better and better year after year. Hey, look at that uh, Santa Clara team and what was it, 23-24. And the yeah. fact that that team could even lose a quarter of their games means the, the talent level must have been pretty darn high. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the team, of course, that famously was so far ahead uh, in the league that they said, all right, let's call off the league and we're going to take the worst team, the fourth place team, take their best players and, and give them to the other two teams, not Santa Clara, but uh, Abana and Almondares start the league over again. <laughs> we'll have a second championship that year and Santa Clara still won. So um, it was closer, but, but yeah, no, they still won. Unbelievable. I, uh, I asked some questions. Uh, well, asked some uh, Twitter followers to provide some questions. So I have a few here as well, before we kind of go into individual players, uh, Cooperstown, Dave, we did touch on the, the, the competition level compared to uh, the various leagues in America at the time. Uh, but he asks, what factors led to some Cuban players pl- playing in the Negro Leagues while others didn't? Well, well, because it's the United States we're talking about, um, it was skin color was probably the biggest, uh, the biggest mm-hmm. uh, uh, factor there. Um, I mentioned that Cuban players, you know, we, we talked about the, uh, the all Cubans and the Cuban stars teams coming to tour in the U.S. Well, it's also true that Cuban players began to be hired by organized baseball teams in the U S uh, 1904, I think is the first um, instance of Cuban league products being hired by U uh, uh, S minor leagues, uh, minor league teams. Uh, this was the Jacksonville Jays in the South Atlantic league. Um, and they brought in Esteban Prats and um, Juan Vila that year. And there were a trickle of others and Valentin Gonzalez joined the same team the next year. Luis Padron went first to Poughkeepsie in um i think i was at the hudson river league i forgot the league that they, they that they were in i think i think it was hudson river league and then he also joined jacksonville and he actually went on to a long luis padron went into a long minor league career in the u.s uh, so there was uh, a a path into organized baseball for white cuban players um starting at a fairly early uh stage and of course by 1911 <clears throat> on uh 
July 4th, 1911, Armando Marsans and Rafael, Rafael Almeida played for the Cincinnati Reds. Um, and there were Cubans in the major leagues from that point, um, including most famously Dolph Luque, Cincinnati Reds pitcher, and Mike Gonzalez, the longtime catcher, um, uh, both of whom would return to Cuba in the winter and act as player managers for their teams in the Cuban league um, while they were playing in the major leagues. Um, so uh, uh, there were two, so there are basically two paths as the question pointed out for Cuban players in the U S it's the sort of black ball circuit of uh, the Negro leagues, you know, and then organized baseball to the major leagues. Uh, there was some interplay between the two because sometimes, <clears throat> um, you know, the Cuban stars teams would have players of all colors. Um, they were increasingly black as time went on because uh, white players who were good enough basically were going to get into organized. They were going to go for organized baseball. They're going to go for the minor leagues and the major leagues if they could get to it. Um, the Negro leagues was sort of, not necessarily like their first choice. Um, but as late as the 1920s, you had um, uh, white Cuban players who did appear in both the Negro Leagues and in, in uh, 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 the minor and, and the major leagues. There, there were three players in the 1920s, um, Pedro Debut, um, uh, 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 Oscar Estrada, and Mike Carrara, who played for the Boston Red Sox. And all three of those players played in the Negro National League. So yeah, I remember when uh, we added the stats to, to baseball reference and I was just kind of cross-checking the players who appeared in both. I was like, wait a second. There are players who yeah. played in the Negro <laughs> leagues first. And then the, I was totally yeah. played in the, the, the AL and NL first and then the, the Negro leagues. And I was like, I had no yeah. idea that even happened with like Pedro beat devote and, and yeah. uh, unbelievable. Um, so, okay. We got the question here about offensive levels. So uh a couple here are specific to certain players. I'm going to say of those, but Graham Womack asks, who's the closest thing to Martin DeHigo in that era? And I asked for uh, some clarifying questions like uh, just, does he mean like in terms of two-way players, he just means kind of like in, in terms of pure dominance um, and maybe who the players were that influenced Martin DeHigo. Hmm, interesting. I'm not sure who influenced Digo, but um that's a good question. I mean, other than, um, you know, other, other players who would have been, uh, who we would have played for and with, um, but who is, who is the most dominant? Well, the best Cuban position player before Diego was Chris, Cristobal Torrienti. I think, mm -hmm. I, I think that's, that's pretty obvious. And the best pitcher before him, uh, was Jose Mendez, who was something of a two-way player himself. Um, he did play shortstop, um, uh, at times. Um, uh, I think as a, and I might as well extend the question to what was there a two-way player like Diego? Well, not yeah. really, you know, but, but there, there was, there was only one Martin Diego, but, um, uh, there's somebody, I think that you may have a question about this, but Eustachio Pedroso, um, who is a first baseman outfielder and pitcher for a long time, long time mm -hmm. in the Cuban league and also in the, in, uh, the U S, um, Negro leagues. Um, he was actually somebody who, for for a time in the mid uh, teens, mid nineteen teens, uh, was one of the best hitters in the Cuban league and one of the best pitchers. Um, so yeah, there's a there's a two way player who is really good. Um, I don't think he was Diego, um, you know, but he was very good in his time and context. Yeah, that's a that was a question from Adam Pinnell. Uh, he asked, "How good was 
Eustachio Pedroso, and why does he have the highest war of anyone in the Seamheads database, not in the Hall of Fame? And by Hall of Fame, he means either the, the National Baseball Hall of Fame or the Cuban Hall of Fame. And I think you kind of touched on a couple of the reasons. Uh, he had the hitting career, the pitching career, and a long career. Yeah, yeah, that's basically it. Um, he was he had a great he had a great peak in in a, in in the Cuban League. I think he was not as successful in um, the Negro Leagues, um, uh, but uh, which is true. There's there's some players who did better in Cuba than in the U.S. and vice versa. Um, but yeah, lots lots of lots of volume to his career, <laughs> and lots of lots of you know length, and then the fact that he both pitched and hit regular and hit well and played regularly in the field. Yeah, that, that pretty much accounts for it. And also, also I should say that um, his Cuban career, I think I've got almost there are probably a couple of seasons missing, but I think I've got almost all of his Cuban career. Um, so he just happens to have played during the time that is really well covered by our database. Right. So, yeah, he has 16 seasons in the Negro leagues and pre-Negro leagues in the database mm-hmm. and also four year, 14 years in Latin American. So it's kind of like uh, combining to get like 30 seasons worth of war. He just kind of <laughs> yeah. is that perfect storm Yeah. question about him and the hall of fame. Now he was inducted quote unquote, inducted into the Cuban Hall of Fame in 1962, which I guess mm. isn't considered official. Do you have any explanation about like, there's like up until a certain point, it's considered official. And then like somebody else took the Hall of Fame over and yeah, was doing I, pretty well. And then like, I guess the the selections got worse after that. So they're kind of ignored now. <laughs> yeah, I don't have any pr- particular knowledge of that, but I believe that that has something to do with, you know, that I think the newer selections are done in the U.S., right, by Cuban emigres um, rather than the, you know, but rather than a, you know, a body of folks operating in Cuba, is that, I, I think. But, something like that, but then it was yeah. like finally returned to Cuba for like a 2014 um, class or something like that, so, okay. and Pedroso was inducted in the middle portion where it wasn't officially in Cuba, so he's not considered uh, an official Cuban Hall of Famer, I guess. This is, I'm trying to get my head wrapped around it. It's a little bit confusing to, to see different people claiming the Hall of Fame at different times. Yeah, well, I guess that's that's part of, uh, you know, uh, it's one of the things that ha- has happened in Cuban history because you have different, you know, different people claiming different parts of Cuban history. <laughs> and, uh, um, you know, it's, it's just uh, sort of a, uh, you know, political conflict over time creates these kinds of divisions, I, I suppose. <laughs> this question from Phil Selig, I, I didn't know too much about this uh, at all here. So I'll just read the question. I want to hear more about the sugar leagues outside of Havana. Was it just largely the players from Havana and Santa Clara who played in the pro league while others found the corporate sponsored amateur leagues more financially viable? What was the dividing line? And I'll admit, I don't even know what this question is asking. So if you want to kind of clarify that. Yeah. Well, the, I, I believe he's talking about, you know, uh, uh, teams are sponsored by, sugar companies and the sugar industry is was was the biggest industry in cuba for mm-hmm. for a very long time um it's you know the the, the object of american and uh, u.s investment for many years and it was sort of sort of the the, the economic engine of of the cuban the engine of the cuban economy um so there was a thriving uh uh 
baseball scene, like uh, 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 among the sugar companies uh, spon- sponsored by them. Uh, so including uh, uh, players who were workers. I think, I believe Mini Minioso uh, first came up through uh, in a setting sort of like that. Um, I think he, he was playing for company teams um, as a teenager. Um, so this was something that's that's that grew over time and was very very much a source of a major source of of talent in Cuba. Um, the Cuban League, as we now understand it, and how uh, that that was best known at the time was was the Havana based league, which sometimes ventured outside of Havana to places like Santa Clara. Um, my my sense is, and I, I don't have a lot of I, I've not done research on. The sugar mill teams um so i don't have a lot of firsthand knowledge of them my sense is that over time so the money was in havana uh that's where the big crowds were <laughs> that, that's that's where players were paid the best so my sense is that over time the best players would gravitate towards you know the havana-based league the cuban league as we know it um but there could well have been talent out there that wasn't that was never picked up you know by uh by the, the, the major Cuban league. Um, this was, I guess, part of the, the, you know, the reforms that uh, the Castro era government initiated and in create, creating a, a, a bigger league that actually covered the whole country and wasn't, wasn't confined to Havana and uh, uh, the sort of Western region of the Island. Um, that's sort of, I think it was aimed at giving a chance to all of that talent. Um, so it's possible that definitely if you talk, go back to the early part of the 20th century, you go back to the 1900s, 1890s, you were not getting like a huge influx probably of professional players coming into Havana. So yeah, you probably had people who were from that area, you know, and not elsewhere. But I think that increasingly as the century went on, you know, you get into the 20s and 30s and I think you were, they were pulling in players from elsewhere. Yeah, there were... We've definitely learned there's outsider baseball everywhere. So not yeah. surprised there was more talent out there. Yeah. Uh, Carlos Rojas uh, wanted to hear about the role of Abelinares. And he said mm. he thinks it belongs in the Hall of Fame. Mm. Yeah, well, um, I, I don't have a lot of detail on his on his biography, but Abelinares was the... He, he, he organized the All-Cubans trip to the United States in 1899. Um, and so he was the entrepreneur who was really responsible, probably more than anyone else, for initiating that tradition of you know the annual Cuban Stars teams going to the United States. Um, and he owned those teams, you know, for years. Um, there were there were competitors. He had he had other folks, other other people uh, started their own teams and traveled to the U.S. In fact, he he didn't come up with the Cuban stars name himself. His teams were originally the all Cubans. Um, the Cuban stars team that became really established on the East coast in the U S in the 1900s, uh, though he eventually took over now that one uh, through, through a very com- complicated history, that one became more and more focused on the Midwest. So that was more of a, eventually by the 19 teens, that was more headquartered in Chicago. It was run by, Four Lenares owned it, but it was run by Tinti Molina, who was who was a, a player, and he managed the Cuban Stars for many years. And eventually, that team became part of the Negro National League in the 1920s. Um, there was a 
major competitor, started in the mid-teens. And this was uh, uh, the Cuban Stars team that was founded by Alex Pompez, who is Cuban-American um, from Florida. Uh, and he sort of... Uh, he, he you took took the Cuban star's name. <laughs> There's a story that they the two teams played in Puerto Rico for the right to use the the name, and Pompez's team won and left the island before uh, he could be prevailed on to have a rematch. <laughs> so so, so Pompez always claimed that he was the genuine Cuban stars, and and uh, meanwhile the the Linares Molina team also claimed that they were the real Cuban stars. And after that point, they actually rarely, if I don't, I don't know that they ever, those teams ever played each other in the United States. I don't think they ever did. I'm, I'm trying to think of an example. I know I can't think of one. So, uh, so the, so the Pompez team was in the East, they were in the Eastern colored league. Uh, and he later, uh, it was not continuous, but he later started another team, the New York Cubans, uh, in the 1935 and they were in the, the second Negro national league, uh, the Abel Linares uh, also eventually um, he not only did he run these tours of Cuban stars teams to, to the United States, uh, he also gradually gained control of the Cuban League itself. And eventually he was the main force you know, in Cuban baseball um, through the 1920s. He passed away in 1930. And when he passed away, the Western Cuban stars, uh, the Tinti Molina team, that basically stopped because uh, Linares was not there to fund it anymore. So, uh, so that was the end. That's why there's, that's why there's a, there are two Cuban stars teams to a point. And then after, you know, and from 1930s on, there's really only one. Excellent. Thank you. Now we have another question that's uh, going to lead us into the players. So maybe I'll just kind of start by saying this is technically a, a hall of fame podcast. The players that we're going to mention in this probably none of them are actually technically eligible for the national baseball hall of fame, but I've been doing more and more episodes like this that, uh, you know, they're just kind of sidebars of things that I've discovered while, while doing research on the Negro league. So we don't have to talk about these players in terms of the hall of fame. Cause I don't think they're, they're actually you know eligible, but just kind of finding out more about who I'm kind of discovering are probably the greatest players that I had never heard of. And the, the question here from exploring baseball history is just how good was Regina Garcia? MLE's show a Hall of Famer, and I had never heard of him. And I'll, I'll kind of build on that to say there's like kind of three players in particular that, that have kind of jumped out at me uh, with looking at this, this class of players. And I'm not really including anybody that played in the, the post-1920 Negro Leagues or, or played in the major leagues. So there's like you no know, Mike Gonzalez here, for example. So I'm looking at uh, first baseman, Julian Castillo, third baseman, Carlos Moran, catcher, Regino Garcia. These, mm -hmm. these guys seem like beasts. Yeah, uh, those, are, those are definitely three of my favorite players from this era, especially <laughs> Carlos Moran. Um, so Carlos Moran um, was a left-handed third baseman <laughs> um, who who was this sort of astonishing uh, on base percentage machine. <laughs> so um, as, as, as you've seen, and that's something that really, you know, you would look in, you know, either English or Spanish language accounts of the game. And you would not know that um, before uh, 
actually before we compiled the statistics for this, because, you know, there weren't actually full statistics that, uh, you know, included batter's walks, for example. Um, so that's something that does come out of statistical, you know, uh, research. Um, so Carlos Moran was a uh, of Chinese Cuban heritage. Um, uh, he was one of three brothers. Um, he had two, uh, two others, uh, Francisco Moran and Angel Moran. Uh, who also played in the Cuban League, um, and uh, he this this was a time. Obviously, having a left-handed third baseman is you know not something we've really seen in in uh, the highest levels of baseball for many decades. But at that point, the it wasn't. I wouldn't say it was it was common, but it it was still happening. There were a couple of sort of attempts at having regular. Uh, uh, infielders who were left-handed uh, in the U.S. as late as the 1890s, and in fact, um, Kid Moeller, who was uh, he played in the, in the major leagues in the 1890s. Um, he went on to play in the Pacific Coast League as a second baseman until uh, 1911, 1912. He was left-handed, so left-handed second baseman, was playing in the PCL until around 1912 or so. Um, so it is something that's still just kind of you know, not not the usual thing, but it did happen occasionally. Um, so, and and in fact, uh, an American umpire, Billy Evans, uh, who actually accompanied um, uh, uh, some of the major league teams down to Cuba, he wrote a series of columns in U.S. newspapers about Cuban baseball and kind of what it was like there and everything. And he mentioned Maran in particular. Said, "Yeah, he's a left-handed third baseman. He's brilliant. I, I think that's the word he used. He was a brilliant third baseman." <laughs> so. You know, <laughs> so, so that's all. That's, awesome. that's 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 you know that's that's uh, so that's that's Moran, and he he uh, he didn't perform quite as well, I think, against um, Negro League opposition in the United States when with the Cuban Stars as he did in the Cuban League. Um, uh, but he was still 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 a perfectly good player. Um, I would love to. Uh -huh. I would love to just kind of jump in with his stats just to paint a picture oh, for yeah. the listener about uh, yeah. Moran. So you said the batting averages were very low in Cuba. He hit 283. Mm -hmm. But then, as you said, the walks, his OBP was 432. Now, he never hit a home run in Cuba. So his <laughs> slugging percentage was 319. But it's a 163 OPS plus with that odd slash line. He had a 402 WOBA against a league average of 299. So that with, with literally no power, this is the type of player that he was. So, mm -hmm. Yeah. Kind of like Roy Thomas, who is a contemporary, like in the U S right. like kind of similar as a hitter, I think um, just, a, just sort of a singles hitter who walked all the time was always on base. <laughs> you know? mm -hmm. So all right, Let, let's go to, let's go to Regino. It's Regino and not Regino, right? Red, Re, Regino? Regino, sorry. Yeah. Regino yeah. Garcia. Yeah. Yeah. Well, now he's an interesting player too. Um, he won, well, officially he won four straight um, batting titles in, in Cuba. Um, I think possibly in our statistics, it comes up as three, but that's because of, I think some games that are missing that were played in Matanzas. Um, but anyway, um, uh, there are sometimes like small differences between what we found in the box scores, what the official stats were, but uh, at this distance in time, it's 
very hard to figure out why that is sometimes, you know. That's a sidebar question as well. So the mm-hmm. Cuban stats are also built from the box scores yeah, up yeah. like that. Excellent. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. So that's why we don't. So we just have the stuff that I have put together um, through box scores, um, which is why we stop in 23, 24 and only have 27, 28 after that. I just, that's just where I stopped. <laughs> I haven't been able to get, in fact, I haven't been able to get back to it for a couple of years because I am working on the Negro Leagues 1920 to 1948 primarily now. Mm, and so, yeah. um, does that data exist somewhere? Sure. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I can, um, I, I should be able to do, uh, well, I think there are box scores for every game played in Havana or almost every game, maybe it's like a handful that don't have box scores, but everyone played in, every professional game played in Havana from 1900 to probably the 1929-30 season. Those are available uh, to me <laughs> anyway, um, the newspapers that I have. I think when you get into the 1930s, like some of the papers that I have available to me, like Diario de la Marina and maybe La Lucha, like I think they print fewer box scores, so I'm not sure. But I do have um, three Cuban baseball guides from the 1940s that reprinted every box score for the season. So there are three oh, seasons wow. there. Yeah, so from the 1940s that uh, we will get done eventually. Excellent. All right, back to Regino, sir. <laughs> right, right. Uh, Regino Garcia. So a catcher, um, you know, an excellent hitter in the Cuban League, four straight batting titles. Uh, um, he... Uh, didn't really get started in the Cuban league until he was probably 26 or 27. You know, it's unclear some of the ages of these early Cuban players, because the only evidence that we have about their age are the ages given on passenger lists when they travel between the U S and Cuba. And that's can be vague and subjective. Like we don't you know, like, you know, uh, how reliable those ages are. So, but that's the age to the, more or less that was given um, by him several times when, uh, upon traveling. So, so probably now he was likely somebody who played baseball before he was 26 or 27. Uh, however, he didn't really, wasn't able to play in the Cuban league until, uh, you know, until it was integrated. So that's probably the reason that he wasn't, uh, uh, you know, recorded in, 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 uh, at the highest levels of Cuban baseball um, until, you know, until he was midway through his twenties. Um, I don't personally, I, I don't, I don't know what his story is up to that point. So at this point it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a blank slate. Like we don't know. Yeah. It's that's a little, another little sideline there is that uh, the sources that I use for Cuban baseball of that era um, I mean, there, there are some, uh, there's some excellent, there's one, one excellent history written in, in English by Roberto Gonzalez Echevarria, Roberto Echevarria, Gonzalez Echevarria, sorry, um, The Pride of Havana, um, which is really, really good. Um, and it's well worth picking up if it, I, I suppose, I imagine anybody listening to this is probably already knows about this book, but, um, you know, it's, it's very good general. It's a very long book. It has lots of, lots of detail in it. Um, so that's a great one, but I'm relying for statistics on, uh, primary sources, uh, primarily newspapers, um, like just the regular daily newspapers, but also, uh, 
sort of specialty uh, sports and baseball newspapers or magazines. Um, and those are largely, the, the, the archive for those is very fragmentary. Like there's just not, a lot of them are missing. That's really where a, a lot of the baseball history of the time was recorded then. Like it wasn't so much in the mainstream sort of daily newspapers. Um, so the daily newspapers might publish box scores, but they don't have a lot of articles or interviews or they'd more, more and more in the course of the 20th century, like get into the twenties and they'll have more and more of that, you know, but back to like 1900, 1905, like the baseball papers had all this, all the other stuff in it. And even those, like they didn't give you a lot of details about players' lives. They had box scores, accounts of the games, some of the machinations surrounding the clubs and what the clubs are doing and who's dropping out of the league and who's joining the league. And, you know, the, all, all of the, the debates surrounding um, racial integration in 1900, but um, not a lot of the kind of stuff we would think that you would have in a sports paper, like, you know, long features and long interviews with players. And it's not a lot of that stuff actually. Um, but I was, I was, uh, I was lucky enough to get access to um, about two years to two to three years of these, these uh, baseball papers from 1899 through 1901. Um, by a couple of collectors um, uh, who are gracious enough to share them. Uh, and I've been, was able to use those to compile statistics for those, for those seasons and do a lot of research into at least into the names of the players and so on. But somebody like Regino Garcia, you know, we don't know what his life was before. I don't, you know, before, before he became a professional baseball player. Uh, and maybe there is, you know, in, in, Cuban papers or Cuban publications, you know, somewhere there's there's more stuff about him, but it's not something that I happen to know about. Yeah, regional, uh, recently came across a, a photo of him on Getty Images that's from the 1950s that shows him holding one of his ah, old okay. bats. I was like, oh, oh cool. that's cool. That's rather amazing. I guess he was probably yeah. around 80 at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, unbelievable. Yeah, um, and. We, we talked with Kevin Johnson a decent amount about Julian Castillo, uh, about mm -hmm. he had this great visual of like picture Mark McGuire in a, a field with without fences and long grass, just hitting <laughs> it and making everybody run after it. And he's just yeah. this giant of a man bigger than everybody else. Yeah. So he played like six years with Alamandares, five years with Habana, four years with Faye. So there seemed to be a lot of player movement more than... Mm -hmm. And maybe it just seems like there's more uh, than the Negro Leagues just because there were so few teams. So it almost seems like they're like just cycling yeah. around different teams. Can you talk a little bit about like how that works? Oh, that's a great question. Um, you know, it's not always that clear, but sometimes it just probably depended on, you know, whether the club was uh, uh, ha had the money in any given year. Mm -hmm. You know, one club might have been more successful one year and they decide, hey, we're going to we're going to get those guys on the other team that beat us last year, you know? So there's a lot of, a lot of just revolving and just moving between the clubs like that. Um, eventually all the clubs were owned by the same, uh, the same people. So Linares at one point owned, uh, you know, all the clubs. So the, the, how player movement was handled in those instances, it's a little bit unclear, like why, why you would do it, you know? Um, so, um, uh, uh, but um Earlier, I think in the in the 1900s, you had um, uh, uh, you know different clubs with different agendas. Um, Almendares in the 1900s 
grew to become a team that thought of itself as a sort of pure Cuban team. So we only have Cubans. We don't hire foreign players. Um, Abana was willing to hire some. Uh, and Faye was uh, around that time. They actually sort of went all in on it and hired a bunch of, they signed a bunch of uh, uh, Black American players in particular um, in the 1906-07 season um, starting then. So there were teams that had different strategies and different sort of conceptions of what they were trying to do um, uh, at different times. So that probably drove some of the player movement. Here's a player that came so early that he's not even in James Riley's book. And I will be honest, I only saw his name for the first time less than a week ago while preparing for this. That's Carlos Royer. And he had some impressive stats. We're talking like 83 and 42 record in the Cuban league with a 1.82 ERA, which again, a 1.82 ERA while very good, it's a 141 ERA plus, not like mm. a 220 yeah. that you might expect if you saw that in another era. Yeah. Uh, very early Cuban Hall of Fame inductee. Oh, even his slash line, 207, 278, 226, comes out to an 85 OPS plus. So shockingly close to league average with about a 500 OPS. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm actually... so. By, by coincidence actually was like going back and doing some work on some of the, like one of, one of the seasons that I need to fill in is the 1901-02 season. Um, and that that's the year when Carlos Royer um, went undefeated. Um, he pitched all of Abana's games and they went 17 and 0 and he won all of them. So yeah, um, he started as um, I think a third baseman in the 1890s, um, in the early 1890s. And he was, as far as I can tell, just in looking, re- reading the baseball papers of the time, he was something of a, like a sort of very minor celebrity. They like to put pictures of him because they thought, you know, a, a sort of glamorous looking pictures of him wearing, you know, a suit, you know, an eight, sort of Victorian era kind of, kind of, kind of clothes. Um, he didn't really become a pitcher until around 1900. Um, he had been a position player before that. Um, so becoming a dominant pitcher was something that happened like sort of midway through his career. Um, and he was incredibly successful. Uh, he, he did co- go to the U.S. to play in the minor leagues. Um, he actually was brought to Poughkeepsie where Luis Padron, his team, a Bonnet teammate, uh, was playing. Um, he was only there very briefly, and I haven't been able to find a full account for why you know he 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 didn't stay there for very long. But one can imagine. I mean, it's, it was probably you know a tough environment to go to a foreign country and play on a team that only has one <laughs> one of your former teammates on it and a bunch of you know a bunch of uh, Americans. Um, so who knows? You know, I don't know whether he he was cut by the team or whether he left on of his own volition. Um, I don't know, but yeah, Carlos Roy. He, so he was, he was also his other, one of his other claims to fame is that he's the guy who discovered Jose Mendez. Mm-hmm. Um, he saw him pitching a game and uh, reported back to the Almandari's club that he was uh, working for at the time. They're like this, here's, here's a guy we've got to get. So, um, so he's, yeah, the discoverer of Jose Mendez. Excellent. I have uh, a few guys to bring up from the next generation of, of Cuban players who kind of also 
some of, I think all of them played at least a little bit in the, in the Negro major leagues. But before I move on to them, are there players from the early pre-1920 era that uh, stand out um, along with those three there? Like Jose Munoz is a name that I have written down. Mm-hmm. Um, Gervasio Gonzalez, I guess he was. Um, yeah, he was he a was, great defensive catcher. That's what he's pr- primarily known for. He's a good hitter too, but you know, not like Garcia. Um, I think in in that case, it's like you know Garcia was you know the uh, the offensive force as a catcher, but maybe not as you know not not as well regarded defensively, or at least nobody really talked about him as, as much. Mm. But Gonzalez was. A, his nickname was Strike, or which is Strike, just pronounced, you know, Strike. Nice. Um, he um, uh, he was he had a really strong arm and was regarded as you know the greatest defensive catcher in Cuba. Uh, and he's um, one of those. Both he and Bruce Patway were um, are sometimes reported to have thrown out Ty Cobb while stealing. Um, Patway definitely did. We have a, I have an account of that. He threw him out stealing once and he threw him out trying to bunt his way on in the same game. So he threw him out twice in the same game Petway did. Um, Gonzalez, I'm not sure about based on the accounts we have, but it's possible. There's one game where he had three assists as a catcher and, and uh, Cobb played in that game. It's possible he got on and was caught stealing, but the accounts that I have don't say nothing about that. Mm-hmm. So um, the, the, the other thing about Cobb is that the big story is today that people remember is that he was supposedly caught stealing a bunch of times in Cuba, you know, and stomped off and vowed never to play against black players again. Um, In Cuba at the time, the big story was not that it was the fact that Jose Mendez struck him out. That was a bigger Mm. deal. (laughs) Oh man. Yeah. So was Gonzalez, I saw that he was Mendez's catcher. Was that like a long time thing or just. Yeah. They both played for Almendares. So yeah, he caught, caught Mendez a lot. Yeah. And also on the uh, Cuban stars in the U S so yeah, they would, he would have caught him in quite a few games. I have, so that, that next generation of players, um, one that I had never heard of at all, Augustine Bejarano. Uh, Ramon Bragania. I, I've gotten to, to know him a little bit more. I even saw some footage of him on Twitter today, oh, wow. which oh, is cool. rather amazing. Uh, Lazaro Salazar, and uh, another personal favorite, just uh, from learning about him, is Silvio Garcia. Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah, yeah. Silvio Garcia, of course, you know, is reputed to have been considered by Branch Rickey to be mm-hmm. the player to break the color line. Uh, in the U.S., but uh, supposedly the reason he wasn't is because Garcia was famously combative, and Ricky was worried that he would, uh, if somebody uh, tried to abuse him, you know, or, or insult him, that he would he would he would respond, you know. And Ricky didn't want that to happen. So, uh, I, I, honestly, I don't know the full truth of that, you know. But um, it's a good story. But Garcia was, you know, also, you know, a, a a brilliant shortstop and uh, a good hitter, and um, it's also a pitcher during part of his career. So he was somebody else who, who uh, was something of a two-way player. But he's really he's also one of I, I think one of the one of the best Cuban players of the '30s and '40s, definitely. Um, and one of those uh, in-between players who mm, just came at that's just, true. Just, just he was just a time. little, yeah, he was a little. T- 
I think he was, if I remember correctly, he was perhaps 32 or so uh, in 1947, something like that. Um, uh, so he, yeah, I think he was in his early 30s. So he was maybe just a little old, you know. Mm. Um, and I think, although although I mean, Robinson was 28 by the time he uh, played in the National League. But uh, generally, they were looking for younger players, and you had to be really exceptional to break through when you were older, uh, like Amadi Irvin, or um, and even somebody like Willard Brown, who's a Hall of Famer. Like he was uh, 32, right. and he got a brief chance at the St. Louis Brown, not a real chance, you know, um, and never got another one. So yeah, but here's yeah. Four years in the Negro Leagues, but eight in Mexico. I see 19 in, in Cuba uh, mm-hmm. per Riley. Not all of them are, are covered in the, the Seamheads yeah. database, of course. Yeah. Uh, three years in Canada, one of them where he won the Triple Crown and uh, even was on the 1937 Trujillo team in the Dominican, too, which uh, that's um, another it's an incredible team. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of uh, managed by Salazar, who I guess we could we could talk about next too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Salazar is another. Well, he's uh, okay. T- talk about a two way player. Yeah, he was also a very uh, good pitcher. Um, had a long career. Also, is primarily played in the outfield, but also uh, I think primarily as a first baseman through most of his career. And he's somebody who just brings together. <clears throat> um, he just has such a long, like varied resume. It's one of these mm. things you put it all together. It's, it's kind of hard for people to focus, people to focus on it in a way, because they're used to being able to look at baseball reference and look at somebody who had a career in the major leagues and there's the career. It's all right there on the page. You know, it's all at once. I think Salazar is somebody, cause he was also very successful as a manager, you know, and, and sort of you have to put all these things like, and, and he played in so many different countries, uh, you know, you have to put all these things together, you know, to try to get a full picture of him, you know, and it's, and it's, it's, uh, it's hard to do sometimes it's hard to put him into focus, you know? Yeah, I'm seeing 14 league titles in four countries as a manager, four batting titles in three different mm-hmm. countries. A lot is made out of um, uh, Dehigo being in is it four or five halls of fame. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, Salazar's in the Mexican, Cuban, and Venezuelan, which is pretty impressive in itself, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 There are a lot of, uh, yeah. And it's, and it's also sort of, he he crosses that sort of 1940s like sort of that 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 period where it's lots of different things going on the Mexican League and you know the, the Cuban League is still still the very very important uh, uh, um, uh, league and you have integration going on in the U.S. and minor leagues and and so on so you have people whose careers just are spread out through all this sort of you know panoply of different the sort of a much wider baseball world than maybe we kind of think of today. Is there a, a story behind him being the manager of the Trujillo team? That, that seems like a pretty prestigious uh, role to get. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't, I don't know if there's a story behind it, but you know, it was typical to have a player manager. And I think as you know, a, somebody who had experience in Dominican, I believe he'd had experience in Dominican baseball and definitely in, you know, obviously, of course, in, in Cuban baseball before he knew a lot of the players and, and um, you know, so, you know, it's, it, it's uh, evidently a measure of like how, you know, how much he was respected by folks that he was the guy chosen to lead the team that had uh, 
Satchel Page and Josh Gibson and all those people, all those uh, players on it. Uh, another one is Ramon Bragaña, who mm. was Cuban but played 18 seasons in Mexico. Um, one season in particular where he hit 277 with a 384 OBP, but also happened to win 30 games, 30 the games, only 30 yeah. win season in uh, Mexican league history. Uh, and also was the manager after yeah. uh, Rogers Hornsby resigned early in the year. So, yeah. So do you know much about him and what brought him to, to Mexico rather than playing in Cuba or even in the U S well, playing in Mexico. I mean, I think that, um, you know, they were paying very good salaries in Mexico in the 1940s. You know, they made a big play for um, uh, first for Negro leaguers and got some really, you know, big stars. They got cool Papa Bell. They got Josh Gibson for, you know, a season and a half. Um, they brought down Satchel Page in the late 30s. That's where he hurt his arm. So he never actually pitched that much in Mexico. Right. And of course, eventually, you know, they would, the Pat, Pascal, uh, Jorge Pascal would, would eventually go for, uh, white major leaguers too, you know, and brought down a fair number of pretty good players and, and actually made, made plays for others. So there was a lot of money in the Mexican league. So that was actually, um, probably why Bragania and other, um, uh, you know, in, in addition to, uh, uh, the Negro leaguers who went to Mexico, uh, a number of other Latin players from other Latin American countries, in particular Cuba, like really went to Mexico instead of going to the Negro Leagues in the 40s. And how about this is another one who with the MLEs, he I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't know if you are familiar with the Hall of Stats and Hall rating, but 100 being like we're talking like a, a Hall of Fame player. And Augustine Bejarano had a 93, which I, I had never heard of him. So yeah, I, yeah huh. all based on uh, Eric Shalek's MLEs and another one who played 15 years in Mexico, uh, a couple mm-hmm. years in the Negro majors, um, Mexican hall of famer. Uh, anything you can tell me about Bejarano? Well, yeah, that, that's interesting. I wouldn't have pegged him as one of the, as, as, as a, somebody who is that that uh close to uh you know being considered for the hall of fame um he did have a long career um it's probably part of some ways yeah he had had a long career i mean if i remember correctly he started in the late 20s um uh and he's basically uh you know he didn't have that much power um but he did get on base a lot he was just a there's a lot there were a lot of players in the Negro leagues like that i mean when you look at somebody like oh like and in that era too it's like vic harris or ted page like kind of these like speedy left-handed hitters who were pretty good defenders then were not center fielders but you know they, they were quarter outfielders um they generally you know bat first or second um you know, that's, that's the type of player that was very successful in the Negro leagues. And so he's, he seems to be a version of that, um, you know, who played mostly in the Mexican league. So uh, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think, I think that but that's what happens when you do these kinds of this kind of analysis, you know, sometimes you, sometimes you, you're surprised, you know, you don't really expect uh, uh, certain things to come up, you know, but they do. Another one with a, a long career, um, I don't know much about him at all, except I would see his name 
over and over again when browsing seam heads is shortstop Palayo Chacon. Oh I'm yeah. That remotely. Correctly. Yeah. Yeah. He, at one point, you know, if you had asked like a sports writer uh, on a black newspaper and say the mid 1920s, like who are the best shortstops? Like they would have said Palayo Chacon, you know, is definitely one of the top two or three along with, you know, Willie Wells at that point. And Dobie Moore, um, he's a, he was a, you know, a great fielder. He was a pretty good, a decent hitter for a shortstop, not a great hitter, but, but decent, um, very long career going back to, you know, um, the was around 1909 or so, um, in Cuba. Mm. Um, but he was regarded as one of the great fielding shortstops in, in, uh, the history of the Negro leagues and also Cuban baseball. So, um, yeah. And he, he, there are a couple of, he of course had a couple of sons um, who played, you know, in baseball in the U S so uh, there was uh, uh, El- uh, Elio Chacon and um, Palio Chacon Jr. Interestingly enough, there's actually uh, an earlier player who played for the same team as Palio Chacon and was called Palio Chacon Jr. But he is not the later person who was a black Chaco and junior. So yeah, this is a 1938. He's much older than the other, the other person. So it is completely, I, I have no idea. Nobody knows whether this is actually a son of Palio Chacon, whether it's somebody who was nicknamed that or, but he appeared in a couple of box scores um, as Chacon Jr. And they, they called him that in the articles that here's his son, <laughs> but he was never heard, you know, we, we, he doesn't, he doesn't appear again, you know, and interesting. Um, yeah. So. Uh, boy, I'm, I'm, I'm just checking my list to, to make sure there are players that, uh, seeing any that I may have missed. And I did want to ask about Jose Munoz because mm. he's, first of all, he's in, in the wheelhouse of the first couple decades mm-hmm. of the 20th century and just looks like a really solid pitcher for about 15 years. Yeah. Yeah. He really was, he was probably the, uh, see between, well, he, he, he couldn't match Jose Mendez, you know, mm-hmm. who was a sometime team of, of his actually with right. Almendares. Um, uh, but aside from Mendez, he was probably the best Cuban pitcher between around 1905, you know, until, uh, you know, say the emergence of Luque say, so, so for probably 10 years there. So, mm-hmm. um, he was probably other than Mendez, he was probably the best pitcher. He was yeah, just a very, very solid pitcher. Um, his career goes back to, you know, the beginnings of integration in Cuban baseball. So it's very, it's a very early start in, the, in, in 1900, 1901 or so. So, right. um, um, so he's one of the very, he's part of that first generation of black players to be part of, you know, the, the integrated Cuban league. Um, and he also played, you know, extensively in the United States, um, along with like most of the best Cuban players of his generation. Um, so he has a, a long career with the Cuban stars, the, the various Cuban teams, stars of Cuba, which was sort of a competitor to the, to the regular Cuban stars. Uh, he, he, yeah. he played, he played on that, that team actually. Well, the Cuban stars of 1909 were the first professional baseball team that was photographed with uniform numbers. Yeah. Um, so Munoz I, Munoz, I don't think Munoz was on that team. Men, Jose Mendez was, but 1910 stars of Cuba, which were run by different people. It was an, this American uh, uh, 
bicycle shop proprietor named um, A.M. McAllister started his own Cuban team, signed a bunch of Cuban players and had them travel in the U.S. And he called them Stars of Cuba to differentiate them from Cuban stars. <laughs> um, but there's a photograph of them. They also uh, have uniform numbers. So they're the second professional baseball team to be photographed with oh. uniform numbers. So sorry. <laughs> Just a, no, uh, no. Balls. <laughs> Uh, one thing that is interesting about Munoz is 86 and two thirds innings against major league teams. And he had a 1.45 ERA that kind of jumped yeah, off the yeah. page at me as well. Yeah. Yeah. There's some, because the major league teams that came down to Cuba played a lot of games between 1908 and 1913 is about a hundred games there. So some of those Cuban players racked up a lot of, uh, a lot of time against the major league teams there in in, 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 uh, in Havana. So like Pedroso has a lot. I think he has a seven and 10 record. Um, Jose Mendez has a pretty good record too. I think he wins nine, loses 11. I forgot what his ERA is, but um, yeah, there's a lot of, uh, you know, a, a lot of the hitters have, have extensive, you know, um, 40, 50, 60 games, you know. Um, so that's, that's one of the interesting, you know, uh, uh, aspects of doing this kind of statistical research you find the stuff and it's like you know here here's 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 direct competition between you know the white major leagues and and here's the cuban league which also includes you know the black american players and here's what they did uh there are folks who would say that that's uh uh oh their exhibition games are meaningless the major leaguers must not have been trying but Oh, it's a hundred games. So, you know, that's a lot of not trying, you know, so, right. um, it, they were playing for money uh, before large crowds, um, you know, so, but I, I, it's, it's, it's hard, hard to say exactly what it means, but I think it is worth uh, having that evidence and, and uh, to consider and um, take into account when you're looking at these players. Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree. Um, are there players that I, I'm I should be asking you about that I'm not? Like, have have I left somebody out that I should be learning more about? Well, there are also there there are so many interesting players, but you've already mentioned some of my favorites, like Carlos Moran, um, Stachio Pedroso, Rino Garcia, Carvacio Gonzalez. I mean, I. You know, I think we've hit like a lot of the major like figures. I think there are some some later players, um, Alejandro Ohms, for example, who's of course one of the better known. I mean, he was he was uh, nominated for the Hall of Fame back in two thousand and six. Um, he had a really good um, uh, uh, career as a as an outfielder, just a really good hitter, um, and played very late. You know, he's, he's played into his forties. Um, he's somebody else who didn't really get started also in sort of big time professional baseball until somewhat later age. So he was about 26 or 27, I think, um, when he really got going. Um, he came to the U.S. when he was 22 in 1917, but that was he, he basically he he, he played um, in baseball in uh, provincial league, like outside of Havana for several years. And um only joined the Cuban league in uh, 1921, I think it was, and came back to the U S that same year. So um, he, his problem, I think is that he tends to be, because he's an outfielder playing in the 1920s, he tends to um, like, there's a group of outfielders who had great stats in the Negro leagues, in the 1920s, um, but somewhat shortish careers. When you just consider what they did in the U S uh, Ohms is sort of one of them. 
um, Heavy Johnson and um, uh, Rap Dixon <laughs> is another one. You know, these are all really good players. Um, they they unfortunately like I think they it's like because there are several of them. There's a little cluster of them. It's like kind of hard to pick one above the others. You know, but Ohms had a longer career than them, right? That's true. Yeah. Overall, he had a really he had a that, that's right. He had a, he had a longer career. Um, he was still he he played for the New York Cubans in 1935. Right. So he was, he was still going into his forties. Yeah, no, that's absolutely correct. Um, uh, you do. It's another case though, where I think sometimes you have to fill in gaps, you know, where not everything he, he did was recorded. He played in Venezuela, for example, extensively. And that's not something that right. records from Venezuela are not um, easily available. Um, they do exist though. Um but uh, yeah, so so Ohms is, is one that I thought of. I see. Yeah, I mean, there, there's players that we'd never get. That, like I also have on my list. He's he's from Panama, so he's not really part of this conversation. But Leon uh-huh. Kelman, uh, oh, yeah. who just played literally everywhere it seems. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was in Mexico and Panama for years. He was a two-time uh, baseball World Cup leader in home runs. Uh, first Mexican player in history to hit two grand slams in the same game. Just there's a lot of uh, so many yeah. interesting players like Tatella Vargas would be another one we could talk about. Uh, Perucha Cepeda for going to Puerto Rico, just, mm-hmm. just this whole world outside of U S baseball that uh, just fun to dig mm-hmm. into. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's, 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 there's so much more. And that's actually something like with the same heads database, um, I really, really would would love to, uh, you know, really extend you know, our coverage of Latin American leagues. Um, Cuban Cuban material we've we've got, and we'll we'll keep keep working on that. Um, I have some uh, material on the Dominican League in 1937. It's not quite usable yet for various reasons. There's a very interesting s- story there because right. <laughs> I, I have newspaper coverage, but they tended not to print box scores. Hmm. They would have long stories, but not box scores, except for the final championship series, uh, and maybe a couple of others. Um, I do have copies of score cards that were filled out by a fan um, for most of the games, unfortunately, the fan, um, inst- the fan, fan would write hit for hit and not, um, you know, single, double, triple, or home run. So it'd just be a hit. Mm. And for out, it would be a U T, which is sort of a phonetic spelling of out, right? But without telling you the details of the out. So was it a ground ball to the shortstop? No, you don't just out. So hit mm. out, hit out in the, the notations for runs scored and driven in so it's not that useful for compiling statistics unfortunately it might be useful in conjunction with some other things to at least tell you how many times somebody came to the plate how many plate appearances they had or something like that but the batting average yeah (laughs) yeah and i do have the final statistics that were published in the dominican papers but they're not as a lot of statistics at that time you know they're not really complete they don't have every category that you would want they don't have all the players um so that's so I haven't quite pulled that one together. I'd like to have stats for that league, but don't have it. Um, you know, Puerto Rican baseball is something else we really want to work on. Um, and, and, uh, I think that that material does exist. It's just a question of, um, 
getting hold of the newspapers and uh and, and or or their their baseball magazines in puerto rico as well actually have one that's uh, i have an entire season of it the 1939-40 season when satchel page pitched in in puerto rico i have the box scores for that but it only covers uh half the games so i have half the games for 1939-40 so, so but uh uh, yeah, so there's a lot, a lot more that we would, we would like to do, and and more Mexican league seasons we'd like to add, for example. Um, uh, yeah, so so there's there's That's tons, amazing. tons more, more than we'd like to do. Well, I have often thought um, if there was one person I wish was on Twitter that I could follow, it would be you, just so I could see this, these things that you're working <laughs> on. But unfortunately, you're not. But so, how can people follow along with what you're doing? Uh, uh, just following seam heads essentially. Yeah, basically. I mean, I've, yeah, I've tended to stay away from social media for a lot of reasons. It's too distracting for me, (laughs) uh, but um, I, yeah, maybe at some point I'll do something like that so that people can see more regularly what, uh, what we're adding. Um, But yeah, follow seam heads and, and of course uh, baseball reference where, when we send updates, you know, uh, that's and we we actually have a lot of uh, material coming up, a lot of editions. So, like I said, I'm actually by by coincidence for the first time in several years, I'm actually working on a Cuban season. Um, but although it's one that I only have partial box scores for, unfortunately, but the 1901-02 season. Mm-hmm. But um, Gary, thank you so much for taking the time to chat about this. It was again, very enlightening for me just to, to learn more about these players and this whole other world of, of baseball that I was not as familiar with. Yeah, great. I, I had a great time. Um, and all the questions were all great. And uh, uh, thanks a lot. All right. Have a great night. Okay. You too. Thanks. thanks. Oh, that was wonderful. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Gary even a fraction of how much I enjoyed it. It was uh, wonderful to learn about these players and about this league. Uh, just wanted to tell you that our next episode will finally be moving on from the uh, the 2021 elections, which I still consider this a part of since it's all research that came out of uh, the Negro Leagues, um, which all came out of the Early Baseball Era Committee. So we're going to start talking uh, next episode about the upcoming Today's Game Era ballot, which is going to be a biggie because it's going to have uh, a lot of players uh, eligible who just came off of the BBWAA ballot. So Graham Womack is going to join me on the next episode. Uh, I look forward to chatting with Graham about this. Um, <laughs> I, I think I do. Uh, not not sure I'm, I'm ready for another uh, ballot with potentially Bonds, Clemens, and Schilling, but we'll, we'll see how this goes. Uh, so we'll talk about all the players that are eligible, non-players too, managers, umpires, executives, things like that. Talk about the logistics of what, what this uh, today's game era ballot is, what era it covers, and who, who we'll be talking about in, in this next voting cycle. So I hope you look forward to that. Uh, I'm looking forward to it, and uh, we'll chat soon. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.